Suppose, for instance, it was written in the book of heaven that this man was to die at this particular time and at this particular place. And suppose for a moment that the actual accomplishing of his departure had been bungled, something gone wrong. Uh, perhaps it was meant to be a thunderbolt and there was no thunder available, say. Well, then you come along and you shoot him. And heaven's will is done and destiny fulfilled. Your conscience is quite clear. you got nothing to worry about. That was John Forsyth, the star of tonight's episode. But that wasn't John Forsyth from tonight's episode. That was John Forsyth from The Trouble with Harry, Hitchcock's 1955 film. The Trouble with Harry also stars Shirley MacLaine in her first film role. And Jerry Mathers, just a couple of years before he becomes Beaver Cleaver on Leave it to Beaver. It also features Edmund Gwen, Mildred Dunnock, Mildred Natwick, and Royal Dano, all of whom will show up in episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I should probably add here that each episode of Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents will spoil the episode that we are presenting. And this time, I'm also going to spoil some of the trouble with Harry as well as a tiny bit of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the Star Trek The Original Series episode by any other name. So if you have any plans on watching any of those, you should quit listening now and get back to me later. Now, the first episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Revenge, which we looked at last time, originally aired on October 2nd, 1955. The Trouble with Harry was released on October 3rd, 1955, the day after. So this episode, Premonition, is the first episode screened after The Trouble with Harry opened. I doubt it's a coincidence that the John Forsythe episode was chosen to be aired immediately after the John Forsythe starring Hitchcock film, because it becomes a big advertisement for the film, obviously. If you like John Forsythe in a half hour of Hitchcock television, Come see him in a feature-length Hitchcock film. The trouble with The Trouble with Harry, though, is that it is not a typical Hitchcock film. In their book, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, An Illustrated Guide to the Ten-Year Television Career of the Master of Suspense, John McCarty and Brian Kelleher write, Even before the first episode had been shot, however, the tone of the series had already been foreshadowed by his latest theatrical film, The Trouble with Harry, released that same year. Based on a novel by Englishman John Trevor Story, The Trouble with Harry was an atypical but very personal film for Hitchcock, first because it was one of his few outright comedies, but more importantly because it reflected his own peculiar style of humor, a strictly British style that he called the humor of the macabre. I quoted one of those Hitchcock jokes in the last episode. And I recall seeing Hitchcock on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson years ago, telling a joke about a little boy who thought his turtle had died. But I can't find that clip anywhere. So instead, here's one from Hitchcock's appearance at the National Film Theater in London in 1969. These steps were terribly awkward coming down. One had to step them one by one 
and reminded me of the old lady who was walking with one foot on the curb and one foot in the road. And they said to her, why are you walking like that? She said, oh, I thought I was lame. <laughs> and here he is in a 1966 interview talking about the humor and the trouble with Harry and actually using that phrase, humor of the macabre, as well as telling another macabre joke. Uh, but I, it happens to be what I would like to say is true Hitchcock more than anything else because it has the humor of the macabre and that's typically uh, English humor. You know, the famous story, which is always quoted as a, an example of the humor of the macabre by the Londoner. When um, an English comedian died and was killed in the last war, and at the cemetery, the bulk of the mourners were fellow comedians. And one mischievous young one leaned to an old one and said, How old are you, Charlie? And the old one said, Oh, he said, I'm 89. Young one said, Hardly seems worthwhile going home, does it? <laughs> so that's, a, that's the humor that appeals to me, and that's what trouble with Harry was. Let's go back to McCarty and Kelleher again. They write, The trouble with Harry is about a dead man named Harry whose corpse is discovered and variously concealed by a variety of people, each of whom thinks they might have accidentally killed him. As an ironic counterpoint to the story of possible homicide, Hitchcock unfolds the film on a lush autumn day. It's as if I had set up a murder alongside a rustling brook and spilled a drop of blood in the clear water, he said. At one point in the film, a character named Miss Gravely, played by Mildred Natwick, meets up with another character named Captain Wiles, played by Edmund Gwen, who is dragging Harry to his next resting place. And she says to Wiles, quite matter-of-factly, what seems to be the trouble, Captain? To Hitchcock, the understatement of this exchange seemed terribly funny. That's the spirit of the whole story, he said. It is also the spirit of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, in which he attempted with great success to introduce the same kind of macabre merriment not only into his witty on-camera remarks, but into many of the series episodes as well. So did Miss Gravely's What Seems to be the Trouble, Captain, seem funny to you? Let's try some others. How old do you think I am, young man? Mm, 50. How old do you think you are? 42. I can show you my birth certificate. I'm afraid you're going to have to show more than your birth certificate to convince a man of that. Next thing you know, they'll be televising the whole thing. I'm going over for some blueberry muffins and coffee by her own invitation. And possibly some elderberry wine. Do you realize that you'll be the first man to uh, cross her threshold? Oh, well, it's not too late, you know. It's... She's a well-preserved woman. I envy you. Yes, very well-preserved. And preserves have to be opened someday. Hmm? You're beautiful. Wonderful. You're the most wonderful, beautiful thing I've ever seen. 
I'd like to paint you. Was oh, there something else you wanted, Mr. Marlowe, isn't it? You certainly are a lovely woman. I'd like to paint you nude. Some other time, Mr. Marlowe. I was about to make Arnie some lemonade. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Perhaps I've come at an awkward moment. If you want to undress me, you have. <laughs> I'll trade you. Your mother for mine? You have it for the frog. It's yours, Arnie. I think you got the best deal. Dead rabbits don't eat. Can I borrow your rabbit, Mr. Marlowe? Sure, honey. What are you going to do with it? You never know when a dead rabbit might come in handy. It already got me one frog. Who's the man up on the path? What man? You know, Harry. The dead man. Oh, him. <laughs> That's my husband. Your husband's dead, then. Is your lemonade sweet enough? Seems to be. I like a tart. Harry is Arnie's father, then. No, Arnie's father's dead. So is Harry. He pestered me to go back, but I always refused. Well, suppose some night I wanted him to do something. Like the dishes, for example. His horoscope just wouldn't let him. You're absolutely right. There's some things I just don't like to do by myself. And no one with any true understanding would blame you for it. I felt sick. Did you see his mustache and his wavy hair? Yeah, when I saw him, he was dead. Yeah, he looked exactly the same when he was alive, except he was vertical. Sammy, come on, help me. I don't care if I killed him or not, for all that matters. <laughs> but I'll get the shakes whenever I see a policeman and he's no good saying I won't. All right. If I had my choice, I'd rather be thought a murderer than proved one. What do you think about it, Mrs. Rogers? I can't see why you're all making such a fuss about Harry. If he was buried, I don't see why you had to dig him up. But since you have, I guess you'd better do what you think best. Frankly, I don't care what you do with Harry, just as long as you don't bring him back to life. I'll get my shovel. I'm afraid I'm causing you rather a lot of hard work. I'm sorry. Not at all, not at all. Well, let's all go up there. You know, I've never been to a homemade funeral before. <laughs> I have. This is my third. All in one day. If any of that appealed to you, then you'll probably like The Trouble with Harry. It's not my favorite Hitchcock film by any means, but it does have its moments. There are things I enjoy about it. I do love the fact that Harry is dead in the rural middle of nowhere, but everybody keeps running into him. And nobody seems particularly interested in doing the right thing. There's a tramp that comes by, steals his shoes. There's an absent-minded doctor who trips over him twice without really realizing that he's dead. John Forsythe's character is an artist, and he goes up into the wild to do some sketches. And he's sketching the scene where Harry's body is. Harry's feet stick out behind some hedges. And he doesn't really realize that there's a body there until he's drawn the feet. So I get a kick out of those sorts of things. I also like the fact that everybody is so matter-of-fact about it. Those moments where they're discussing Harry's body and Shirley MacLaine says things like, how's your lemonade? I also like the way Hitchcock films Harry's body, particularly the shots from the angle coming from the soles of his feet going up. At the end of the film, a note comes up on the screen that says, 
The Trouble with Harry is over. The DVD of The Trouble with Harry has a bonus feature entitled The Trouble with Harry Isn't Over, and it features interviews with John Michael Hayes, who was the screenwriter. He was also the screenwriter of Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, and the 1956 The Man Who Knew Too Much. John Forsyth and Pat Hitchcock, among others. Here's a little bit of that, beginning with John Michael Hayes. He wanted to make the trouble with Harry, and Paramount was not all that delighted with his decision. But it was something he wanted to do, and he had been very good to Paramount, so they said, all right, they'd let him do it. Knowing that it wasn't going to be a typical Hitchcock picture or even a major picture. It was a story about a corpse, yes. The trouble with Harry was that he was dead, and they couldn't get rid of him. That's what they called dark humor, black comedy, but it was not offensive. Unfortunately, I don't think it was a successful movie because people went in to see that thinking they were going to see a Hitchcock movie, suspense, etc., etc. And it wasn't, it was a comedy, even though it was a dark comedy. Hitch was well aware after making The Trouble with Harry that uh, he didn't give the audience exactly what they expected. Yet he liked that subtle sense of humor and he was bound to do it. Trouble with Harry had a great influence on Alfred Hitchcock Presents because he was able to join the humor and a pretty grim story. Even if the stories were very macabre, Harry, you should doctor, please. he realized that the humor of it at the end was really necessary, you know, I think, to bring a little lightness into it. And then it was fun for him to make fun of it, too, at the end, in his uh, beginnings and the endings. And so this brings us back around to Alfred Hitchcock Presents. In their book, The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom write, Hitchcock arranged for James Allardyce, who you'll recall wrote all the intros and outros for the series, to view a screening of The Trouble with Harry and told him this was the kind of offbeat humor he wanted to introduce to television. And he wanted to bring his audience in on a great private joke, the way he brought them in on private jokes and information withheld from the characters of his motion pictures. Now, having said all that, it's interesting to note that this episode's introduction is not funny at all. There are no props. There's no set. It's just Hitchcock telling us about this evening's program. Good evening. Have you ever had a premonition, a feeling that something dreadful was about to happen? I mention that obviously because tonight's play is about a young man named Kim Stanger, about his strange homecoming and of the mystery he found when he arrived. Follow him, if you will, as he attempts to unravel this mystery, hindered at every step by his friends and haunted always by a vague sense of foreboding. This story is appropriately entitled Premonition. I defy you to guess the nature of Kim Stanger's premonition Although we shall give you numerous clues, 
in the prologue which we now present immediately. So let's look at Premonition. First broadcast on October 9th, 1955. Written by Harold Swanton. Directed by Robert Stevens. And starring John Forsyth, Warren Stevens, and Cloris Leachman. We'll get to details on all of those actors a little bit later, including four other actors in supporting roles who are worth mentioning. All of the actors in this episode have distinctive looks and distinctive voices. So if you don't recognize the name, you may recognize the voice. But first, let's look at the writer, Harold Swanton. Or rather, let's not look at Harold Swanton, because... I can't find any personal details on him anywhere. What I can tell you is that this is one of the rare episodes that is an original teleplay, and that Harold Swanton will write 10 more teleplays for the series, though they won't be originals. IMDb tells us that he also wrote for The Whistler, Perry Mason, Wagon Train, The Virginian, along with many other TV shows. And his last listed credit is as co-writer of the remake of the episode Bang Your Dead, which was part of the pilot of the 1980s Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And that just probably means that they took his 1961 script and adapted it. So we're not really seeing Harold Swanton, but we'll see his work again. The next time will be with The Long Shot, which is the ninth episode. As for the director, well, the first thing to note is that He's not Alfred Hitchcock. Here's Joan Harrison talking about Hitch and his relationship with the other directors of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents show. Hitch has always been very tactful about directors. I'm sure that many times he must have felt that he would rather like to direct a certain sequence all over again himself. But he's never said so. Just as much, you know, as he'll never come on the stage, you know, when one of the television directors is directing a show. He feels it's embarrassing for them, and he's perfectly right. And here's Norman Lloyd from Alfred Hitchcock, A Look Back, the bonus feature on the season one Alfred Hitchcock Presents DVD set. Robert Stevens actually directed more episodes than any of the directors. We still had to make it look like a Hitchcock show, but Stevens brought in a certain kind of nervousness to it, which was awfully good. As Norman says, Robert Stevens directed more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents than any other director. In fact, he directed 44 episodes and five episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. He's the only director on the show to win an Emmy, which he won for the third season premiere episode, The Glass Eye, a classic. His next episode is coming right up with episode number eight, entitled Our Cook's a Treasure. Robert Stevens is also known to fans of 50s and 60s anthology series because he directed the Twilight Zone pilot, Where Is Everybody? He also directed one of the classic Twilight Zone episodes, Walking Distance. And Robert Stevens died in 1989 at the age of 68. And so let's begin the episode as Kim Stanger flies home on what looks like stock footage of an airplane. At first, I didn't know what it was that brought me home. A sudden impulse, a hunch, a restless feeling that wouldn't leave me. 
until I gave in and got on the plane. I'd been so far away for so long. It seemed incredible that in such a very few hours, I was home again. Welcome home, Mr. Stanger. Have a pleasant visit, sir. Good day. That's the cab driver welcoming him home. He knows him by name. And actually, the name of the town is Stangerford, clearly named after Kim's family. So he is certainly a celebrity, a personality in town. Now, that's the whole part that the cabbie has, that little bit. But I want to mention him for a bit because the cabbie was played by Paul Brinegar. Paul Brinegar showed up in a lot of 50s and 60s television. He's mainly known for westerns, primarily for playing Wishbone in the series Rawhide. But he also appears in three Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. We're going to see him again in Help Wanted as a police officer, episode 27 of the first season. And Paul Brinegar died in 1995 at the age of 77. So Kim is home. He looks around. He comments that he hasn't been there in four years and everything looks exactly as he left it. And then he immediately bumps into somebody he knows. Kim! Doug! Doug Irwin! When'd you get home? Just arrived from Paris. Paris? Well, how are you? Fine, fine. Working hard. Working? Yeah, it's my music. Advanced composition at the Sorbonne. Been doing a little conducting on the side. Been there for two years and two in Rome before that. Well, what brought you home? I don't know. I suddenly felt homesick. And I grabbed a plane. Does a man have to have a reason for coming home? So you, you just felt like coming home? Yes, and I wanted to see my father. Does he still hate me, Doug? Never quite fit the pattern, did I? Greg never understood that. Kim, your father never hated you. And why doesn't he answer my letters? Well, I don't know exactly what to say. Well, I've got to be getting home to see the family. I'll probably see you tonight. Oh, Kim, you won't find anybody home. They're all out this afternoon. Where? Perry's playing in a tennis tournament. <laughs> How is my brother? Oh, he's great. Oh, Kim, I, I don't think this is a good idea. What? Coming home like this without warning. Why? Well, the family will be disappointed if you don't give them a chance to stage a little welcome. Why not come up to the office, clean up a bit? We'll phone them you're coming. Doug, what's wrong? Nothing, Kim. You sure? Yes, Kim, I'm sure. Come on. But Doug, I said I'm going home. See you tomorrow. All right. So that was an odd, awkward conversation. Kim refers to his father by his first name, Greg. We find out later that Perry does too. Doug seems to know all about the business of the family. We find out later that Doug is the family attorney. He's also Susan's father. Susan's married to Perry. And Perry is playing in a tennis tournament. Now, Doug is played by George McCready. You may have recognized his voice. George McCready was in all sorts of 50s and 60s television. For those of us interested in the anthology shows, he is in the Twilight Zone episode, The Long Morrow. 
He's in two Outer Limits episodes. And he's also in the Night Gallery pilot. He's in the segment called The Cemetery. He plays the rich uncle who is murdered by Roddy McDowell. He was mainly known in the 60s for playing Martin Payton on Payton Place. And his last credit in IMDb is for The Return of Count Yorga. I have not seen The Return of Count Yorga, but I have seen Count Yorga Vampire on TV late at night when I was 13 or 14 years old, and it scared the heck out of me. Now, George McCready is in three Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour altogether. And we'll see him again in the 13th episode of the first season, The Cheney Vase. And so, even though Doug tries to dissuade him from it, Kim goes home. There's a nice little moment when he's at the front door. He knocks with the little door knocker, tap, tap, tap. His shadow is on the door, which I think is rather interesting. The shadow of Kim Stanger coming home, messing up everybody's lives. Then he tries the door, and since it's 1950s America, even though it's a mansion, it's unlocked, and he walks right in. He walks into a large living room. There's a portrait of his dad up on the wall, Greg, in a captain's outfit. There's one of those lights overhead that you can turn on to eliminate the portrait. And Kim turns it on. He then wanders over to a gun rack, takes a rifle off the rack. He goes over to another light, turns that light on to look at the rifle. So that seems a little odd to me to have a moment in one scene where the main character is turning on two lights. Maybe it's completely meaningless, but it seems to me that that's symbolic of enlightenment, or at least a search for enlightenment. Kim sits down to play the piano. It doesn't really look like it's John Forsyth playing, unfortunately. And while he's playing, Susan, played by Cloris Leachman, enters. Susan. Kim. How are you, Sue? All right. I wasn't here for the festivities. Mind if I kiss my sister-in-law? Oh, Kim. Why did you come back like this without telling us? <laughs> your father just asked me the same question. Is it a crime to come home to your family? Greg hasn't written me in four years. I thought if he knew I was coming, he, he might walk out. Is that why you came back? Why didn't he answer my letters? Why does he make me choose between him and my music? Won't he ever understand that music is born into a man like, like a heartbeat, and you can't rip it out without killing him? Kim, there's something you want. A man want... can't hate his son to the end of his days. Time's running out, Susan. We've, we've got to get together before it's too late. Greg understands. And why doesn't he say so? Why doesn't... Susan, there's rust on his guns. 
He never would have stood for that in the old days. Where is he, Sue? Tell me, where is he? Where's Greg? Kim. Perry, where's Greg? I don't know any way to soften this for you, Kim. It's all over and done with. Greg is dead. I want to get back to the rest of that scene in a minute, but first I wanted to talk about a few things. Susan, in a moment there, tries to tell Kim something and then changes her mind. So once again, it's a very odd, awkward conversation. Perry enters in his tennis outfit. Apparently, he's played a tournament. That's what Doug told us he was doing. But his outfit is immaculate. He is sweating a bit, as Kim was sweating at the beginning when he got out of the cab. So Perry played in the tennis tournament and then didn't change out of his tennis outfit and came home looking immaculate with a sweater tied around his neck. None of this means anything. It isn't part of the mystery, technically. But it's strange. And maybe it's all there just to add to the strangeness of it. Now, Perry is played by Warren Stevens. Now, Warren Stevens did appear in Forbidden Planet as Doc in 1956, but he's otherwise mostly in television. The problem is he was never a regular on any shows that are well-remembered today. But he was a guest star in dozens of programs in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He's in science fiction theater, Inner Sanctum, one of my favorite shows of the 60s when I was a kid, Time Tunnel, Rat Patrol, Combat, The Donna Reed Show, The Man from Uncle, I Spy, Rawhide, Honey West, Perry Mason, Gunsmoke, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Bonanza, MASH. In the anthology shows, he stars in the Twilight Zone episode, Dead Man's Shoes. He's also in an episode of Rod Serling's short-lived series, The Loner. He's in the Outer Limits episode, Keeper of the Purple Twilight. He'll show up again in Alfred Hitchcock Presents in episode 30, entitled Never Again. He is also in an episode of Star Trek, entitled By Any Other Name, playing an alien named Rojan, in which he had to play in the following scene. Kalinda, I told you to avoid this human. I did not wish to. I am your commander. That's not enough, Rojan. You did this to her. Corrupted her, turned her away if from If you her. can't keep her, that's not my problem. You know, even understanding that Kirk's point in that scene is to get Rojan angry, it's not one of Star Trek's shining moments. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion quotes Warren Stevens. He says, The Hitchcock shows were fun to do. I had worked with Robert Stevens in New York in one of those live shows back there. And he was nervous. That's about all I can say. But he got the work done. I had met Alfred Hitchcock before. And after I did Alfred Hitchcock Presents, he wasn't involved on the show, really. It was Joan Harrison and Norman Lloyd. I was interviewed by Hitchcock for one of his films, North by Northwest. He knew my work, or said he did. That's exactly what he said. He said, I'm familiar with Mr. Stevens' work, which I took very badly because I didn't get the part. Warren Stevens died in the year 2012 at the age of 92. 
Cloris Leachman, I assume, is known to pretty much everybody, mainly because of her role as Phyllis Lindstrom in The Mary Tyler Moore Show and then in the spinoff Phyllis. But her career has been so much more than that. It has spanned 70 years, and she's still working today. She was Miss Illinois in the 1946 Miss America pageant. Last episode star Vera Miles was Miss Kansas in Miss America two years after that. Cloris is in all sorts of early television, early anthology shows like Suspense and Tales of Tomorrow. She's Ruth Martin in Lassie, but she's also in her movie debut in Kiss Me Deadly with the other star of the last episode, Ralph Meeker. She has plenty of guest appearances in 1960s TV shows, such as Perry Mason, Dr. Kildare, Mr. Novak, 77 Sunset Strip, Run for Your Life, The Big Valley, Adam 12, Judd for the Defense. She's Queen Hippolyta in Linda Carter's Wonder Woman TV series. Now we're moving into the 70s. In the 90s, she's actually in a couple of episodes of The Powers That Be, which starred John Forsythe. If you don't know her from Mary Tyler Moore and Phyllis, then you probably know her from Mel Brooks movies. She's in three of them. She's Frau Blucher in Young Frankenstein. She's Nurse Diesel in High Anxiety. And she's Madame Defarge in History of the World Part One. And then later, she made the transition to older roles, a lot of them with the name Grandma or Granny in them. She's Granny in the Beverly Hillbillies movie made in the 1990s. She's Grandma Ida on the TV show Malcolm in the Middle. She's Grandma in the film Bad Santa. And she's the voice of Granny Goodness in the Justice League action cartoon. At 82, she was on Dancing with the Stars, where she was eliminated sixth in between Tony Braxton and Susan Lucci. She's going to be 92 on April 30th, 2018. As for the anthology shows that we'd like to highlight, she's in one of the best Twilight Zone episodes of all time, It's a Good Life. She's in an episode of Thriller called Girl with a Secret. She's in the Night Gallery episode, You Can't Get Help Like That Anymore. And she's in a sequel to It's a Good Life in the 2000 run of The Twilight Zone called It's Still a Good Life. Cloris will appear in two more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but they're both a little ways down the line. The next one is Don't Interrupt, which is the second episode of season four. Throughout her career, she has won nine Emmy Awards, eight of them primetime, and the Golden Globe Award. And Best Supporting Actress in the 1972 Academy Awards for her role in The Last Picture Show. Here is Cloris accepting her award, which I think gives us a little glimpse into what she's really like. I'm having an amazing life, and it isn't over yet. (laughs) Remember when Ben Johnson said in The Last Picture Show, I've fought all my life against whatever he said, and I feel I've fought all my life against cliches, and look at me, I'm a hopeless cliche. I can't uh, thank anybody. I feel that we all have 
are part of each other, that we've all contributed and we work together and we're all the same people. And uh, I love you all for, for all the experiences I've had, except that I want to say to Cornelia Williams Hurlbut, my first piano teacher, and Rose Lorenz, <laughs> my dancing teacher in Des Moines, and, and uh, my father, Buck Leachman, who paid the bills. <laughs> Wait a And finally, my mother, whose imagination and, and funny sense of humor and almost water, Walter Mitty uh, life herself led to all of this. And I am deeply honored. Thank you. Now let's get back to that scene. I don't know any way to soften this for you, Kim. It's all over and done with. Greg is dead. When? Some time ago. What? What do you mean, some time ago? Kim, he... He died of a heart attack on the tennis court. How, how long ago? Four years. October 10th. Four years? I was in Rome. Why didn't you cable me? Why have you let me go on believing that... It's a long story, Kim. There was this feud between you two. Well, we were afraid you might feel responsible. It did upset Greg, you know. He was awfully fond Good of you. Lord, Perry, what are you saying? You let me believe that he's been alive for four long years and... All the time I've been planning to come back and make it up to him. So we were wrong. It seemed like the only thing to do at the time. Try to understand, Kim. I wish I could understand. Look, Kim. We should have told you. We didn't. Once we got started on this thing, we couldn't stop. It was a bad mistake. Mistake? Perry. <laughs> Look, Kim. A, a heart attack, huh? It was very sudden. Yes, it must have been. He applied for his life insurance only five years ago. His heart was fine then. A coronary can hit anybody, anytime. Listen, I suppose you and Doug Irwin handle all the details of the estate, huh? I don't like the way you said that. I don't like what I'm thinking. If you're wondering about the will, he changed it just after you... after you left. He left everything to me. Congratulations. Kim. Good work. You've got it all. Greg's love, Greg's money, and, and my girl. Kim! I'm so worried about him. What are we going to do? I don't know. There's all sorts of significant lines appearing in that scene. We were afraid you might feel responsible, Perry says to him. That one's interesting. About the will, he says, he changed it right after you... after you left... That one's also interesting. Kim gets all worked up over the fact that Greg's heart was fine five years ago, but Perry is right. A coronary can hit at any time. But then the main point to Kim is you got it all, particularly his girl. So Kim goes up to Greg's room, and he has himself a voiceover. 
Everything was here. Greg's hunting prints, his books, his pipes, his papers, his hunting cap. Everything was here except Greg. There was an eternity between us now. That's one of my favorite moments in the whole episode. Anybody who has lost a parent knows that feeling of all their stuff still being there. But they're not there. And that eternity between you. The sound effect at the end of that clip is the moment when Kim knocks a bunch of letters and Greg's hunting license off of the desk. They're conveniently sitting there right at the edge of Greg's desk. They've apparently been sitting there at the edge of Greg's desk for four years. Kim picks them all up. He looks at the hunting license, comments on Greg's strange, careless handwriting, which is another odd detail in this episode that comes to nothing. And he looks at the date on the hunting license and discovers something. He went on a hunting trip on the 11th. Why had Perry told me he died on the tennis court on the 10th? This revelation sends him into a grand moment of overacting. He's already down on a knee picking up the letters. Now he leans into the desk, chews his knuckle, while this very dramatic music plays in the background. The scene shifts to Doug's office. He's asleep in his chair. There's a bottle of scotch and a glass on the edge of his desk right next to him. And there's a knock at the door. Actually, it's more like a frantic pounding with Kim yelling, Doug, Doug, off stage. He goes to the door, opens it. We expect to see Kim there, but there's an alcove and another door off stage. So we don't actually see Kim enter which is not necessarily unusual for offices, I guess, but when you can create any set you want, seems a bit strange to me. Doug takes a look at Kim and he says, You look just like your father. He never had heart trouble before, Doug. At his age, you don't have to. You don't play tennis, period. He wasn't. You'd better have a drink. He took out this hunting license the day after Perry said he dropped dead on the tennis court. Perry got his dates mixed. He said the 10th. It was the 12th. The day after he filled this out? Yes. <laughs> he took out a hunting license to play a set of tennis. We were going hunting. We called it off. Why? My mother. Rain like the devil. But you played tennis. It's fed up after a while. Astonishing how the courts dried off. Doug, the death certificate's on fire, my boy. Gregory Stanger, age 64. Died October 12th. Cause, coronary thrombosis. Acute. You could check with the constable at Stangerford. You could check with the newspapers of that date. And you can check with the most critical authorities of all. Craig's life insurance underwriters. You can buy a lot of affidavits for $3 million. 
Where did you go on that hunting trip? Kim, won't you take some advice from me? Not as the family lawyer, but as your friend. Forget it. Let Greg sleep. Who killed him, Doc? Nobody killed him. He died on his own tennis court. I'll be back. Where are you going? To find who killed him. Who killed him, Doug? With that line, this episode officially becomes a whodunit. Here's Hitchcock talking about the difference between a suspense and a whodunit. Most people get confused between the mystery story and the thriller and the suspense story and the whodunit. See, well, the whodunit, the oh, it's a bit different. The whodunit, you see, is a uh, intellectual exercise like a crossword puzzle. When you mm-hmm. buy a whodunit, you're terribly tempted to look at that last page. <laughs> and you don't because you feel you've wasted your money or be disappointed. But the suspense story is giving the audience full information before you start. In other words, there is a bomb under these seats. Tell the audience that, then they will scream out and say, get out of there, get out of there. Okay, so if this episode is like a crossword puzzle, are we getting any clues? It certainly seems like it, but do they lead anywhere? In the scene that we just looked at, Doug is clearly lying, covering something up. Did Greg die on the 10th or the 12th? He talks about Greg's own tennis court. He died on his tennis court. Is that where Perry was playing, on the family tennis court, so that he can enter in his tennis outfit? Was there a tournament at the family tennis court? Does any of this matter? There's even a moment in there where I think Doug calls him Craig instead of Greg, though I think that's probably a slip-up by George McCready. The scene begins with Doug saying to Kim, you look just like your father. And it ends, after Kim has left, with Doug saying this. Hamlet and the ghost on the battlements. Now, Doug isn't saying that to Kim, He's saying that to himself, or actually to the viewing audience. So it seems to be a clue of some sort. Is this supposed to make us think that Doug, like Claudius, has killed the hero's father? Does the you look just like your father tie into this? If that's what it's supposed to mean, it's a big red herring. Otherwise, why is it there? Doug, who knows the solution to the whodunit, is talking to himself. Where is the comparison to Hamlet and the ghost, except just that Kim, like Hamlet, is going to go searching for the killer of his father? Otherwise, it's a completely different situation, as we find out at the end. So it's a strange comment in an entire show of strange comments. So Kim goes to the Ravenwood Memorial Park to talk to Mr. Eaton, who is played by Percy Helton. If Percy's name doesn't ring a bell, I think his voice will be very familiar. Mr. Sanger, there's nothing more to tell. It's getting late. There's a great deal more you can tell me. Was my father's casket open or closed during the services? I don't remember. Think, Mr. Eaton. Think. Closed. Why? Family's instructions. 
Did you see the death certificate? Yes. Did you see the body? Well, you can always tell. You did see the body, didn't you, Mr. Eaton? Do you think... Do you think my father died of a heart attack? As I said before, you can always check. I know very well who I may check with. There's only one witness I'll believe. Who? My father. Mr. Stangle, I... You run the cemetery, don't you? You have the key to the family crypt. Are you suggesting I that I... must have that key. Get it for me. Get it. I can't permit you to violate the grave no matter what the reason. Why? Does it offend you to taste? Is that it? Are you afraid of something else? Like perjury? How much did they pay you? How much, Mr. Eaton? I can't tell you anything about your father. Because I never saw him. Why? We, we held services over an empty coffin. There's no body in the grave. Why? I don't know where the body is. I simply did as I was told. As to the flowers, I was requested to send them to a place in Sheridan Falls. Someplace up in Maine. I know where it is. Oh, please. Don't tell your brother. I don't want him. Going somewhere, Kim? And yes, Perry walks in just at that moment to witness the end of the confrontation. If you couldn't tell from the clip, Kim goes a little overboard and starts strangling Mr. Eaton, forcing him to come out with the truth. So did you recognize Mr. Eaton's voice? Percy Helton is all over 50s and 60s TV. He's in everything from Father Knows Best to Perry Mason to the Beverly Hillbillies to the girl from Uncle. He's in two Twilight Zones, Mute and Mr. Garrity in the Graves. He's in seven Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes altogether. The next one being The Perfect Murder, the 24th episode. But I also remember him for a small, uncredited role in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I don't even think he has a line, which is interesting, considering how recognizable his voice is. He is Sweetface, who has some sort of position of authority, or some sort of position anyway, at the brothel where Butch and Sundance go. There's a little moment where Butch and Sundance show up, and the posse is chasing after them. Here's that clip. Take our horses out back, will you? Feed them good and keep them out of sight. Her sweet face. Just inside. Trouble? Listen, you dirty old man, I know you're a lion thief and so do you, but who'd know to look at you? Get yourself out front fast. Seen us ride through town not five minutes ago. You do this right, I'll get you an old dog to kick. Here, room nine, the top of the stairs. So Sweetface, played by Percy Helton, goes out to talk to the posse while Butch grabs one of the prostitutes, Agnes, and takes her up to his room. And Agnes is played by Cloris Leachman. Now, Percy Helton was born in 1894. So just about anything you see him in, he's already middle-aged. He died in 1971 at the age of 77. But there's this wonderful picture of him as a young man on his IMDb bio, which you should really check out. So, just like Sweetface, 14 years later, 
when he rats Butch and Sundance out to the posse, Mr. Eaton rats Perry out to Kim. But to be fair, he does have Kim's hands around his throat when he does it. Now, before Perry enters, his shadow crosses the frosted glass of Mr. Eaton's office door. So once again, we have a shadow, like we had Kim's shadow covering the door of the house when he first comes home. And Mr. Eaton sweats in that scene. So there's still lots of sweating going on. But, of course, it's very refined 1950s TV sweat so that you have to look hard to see it. Perry can't convince Kim to stay put. Kim insists that he's going to go to Sheridan Falls. He leaves the office. Perry and Mr. Eaton look at each other very guiltily. So Kim arrives in Sheridan Falls, and he talks to Isaiah Dobbs, the coroner. And Isaiah Dobbs is played by Harry Tyler. Now, Harry Tyler began his career in the 1920s. He has small roles in dozens of films, mostly uncredited. He's in Night at the Opera, I Married a Witch. He's all over early 50s TV in shows like The Abbott and Costello Show, The Dennis Day Show, The Adventures of Superman. And he's Nuxy Breckenridge in Bedtime for Bonzo. Also, like Paul Brinegar, he ends up in plenty of TV westerns. And he's in 11 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He's next in the 20th episode, And So Died Rhea Bushinska. And he died in 1961 at the age of 73. His voice may well be very recognizable, too. I was the assistant here. You can't remember anything about a party of deer hunters that checked in here around October 13th or 14th? Don't know. What do you mean, you don't know? Long time ago. We get a parcel of hunters through here in season. My, my memory is not as good as it used to be. It uh, might need a little help. Oh, anything I can do to help? Well, no, I... I can't cross your palm like my brother does, mister, but I got something just as good. Now, what happened to Rutherford? What did he retire on? A legacy from a rich uncle? Let me go. Let me go. I, I don't know anything I about it. I don't know about Gregory Steiner. Now, talk. We, we had a call that Mr. Stanger had a six bell, and they hauled him back in his private plane, back to Stangford. There was some talk, and George Rutherford went up there to look into it, but nothing come of it. That's all I know. Three went in, and two of them came out. Three went in. I, I only heard. I, I wasn't there. There was Stenger and Irwin. Who else? Stenger's son. They went into Tamarack Lake. How does Kim get Dobbs to spill the beans on this? He picks up a hay bale hook that's sitting around the office and threatens him with it. All right, so now that he has this information, Kim goes to Greg's cabin at Tamarack Lake. The door is unlocked, of course. He walks right in, looks around. Somebody has put into the cement of the fireplace hearth Gregory Stanger, born 1884, died 1950, none of which works for this show. If we assume that he died on October 10th, 1950, this show is airing on October 9th, 1955. 
So it's almost exactly five years. But everybody keeps saying he died four years ago. Meanwhile, he was born in 1884, died in 1950. That makes him either 65, assuming he was born in November or December of 1884, or late October, or 66, not 64, as it said. Once again, all very disorienting stuff. All has nothing to do with anything. Kim sees this on the hearth. He bends down to look at it. There's a really nice shot from inside the fireplace showing Kim stoop down and the door behind as Susan enters. Kim, I've been waiting for you since noon. My dad's plane is down in the lake. Let's go home. You won't stop me now. Kim, for heaven's sake, listen to me. You've got to stop. Please, please believe me. I've got to know. I came all the way from Paris to settle this. I've got to know. Listen to me. You've never been in Paris. You've been in a hospital in Arizona. What? You made it all up. All this about Paris and Rome. You believed it because you wanted to. When was I discharged from the hospital? You weren't, you. You ran away. Greg was murdered. After it happened, Perry and I arranged everything so that it would appear that he died naturally. We bribed the undertaker. And my dad helped with the death certificate. No one has any idea of the truth. We thought it was the only thing to do at the time. Now I'm not so sure. Susan, who killed him? You did, Kim. It was an argument. A loaded hunting rifle. An accident. And after it happened, went all to pieces. I thought so. I, I had a premonition. I've left off talking about John Forsythe's career until now. I want to start with a clip from the The Trouble with Harry Isn't Over documentary from the Trouble with Harry DVD set. John Forsyth talking about how Hitchcock found him. I, for one, was confused about how he had found me. And he said, it was easy. I saw you on the stage. And I said, uh, well, what did you think? He said, well, I put you in my movie, didn't I? And I said, thank you for that. <laughs> he saw me in Tiaz of the August Moon, which was a Pulitzer Prize-winning play, and he said, uh, meet me at Sardi's, which is the big luncheon place in New York where all the theater people went. So I went to Sardi's, and he said, oh, he said, you're taller than you looked on the stage. Yes, sir. I said, so are you. He laughed. He said, 
Uh, it's a good answer, <laughs> yes. However, according to McCarty and Kelleher in their Alfred Hitchcock Presents book, after the failure of The Trouble with Harry, Hitchcock confided to John Forsyth that the actor's talents were better suited to the small screen than the large. And that is essentially the career that John Forsyth had. He is in some movies along the way, like Kitten with a Whip with Anne Margaret. That film is much better watched in the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version. Other than that, his career is mostly television. And it preceded this Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode. He was in Lights Out early on. He was in the TV version of Suspense, the episode On a Country Road, considered a classic in the radio show version where the male lead is played by Cary Grant. Not so much in the television version. But it's interesting to note as we cross-pollinate with these actors in different films and in different programs that Mildred Natwick, who is in The Trouble with Harry with John Forsyth, is in that episode of On a Country Road. Eventually, John Forsyth gets his own television series. He stars in Bachelor Father. In the mid-60s, he has one season of The John Forsyth Show, which, according to Wikipedia, began as a situation comedy in the fall of 1965 on NBC, but at mid-season switched to a spy show, if you can imagine. He stars in To Rome With Love, which is not the Woody Allen movie, but he's probably most famous for playing Blake Carrington in Dynasty and in The Colbys. Here is a quote from the book Cult TV, a viewer's guide to the shows America can't live without, written by John Javna. He quotes a Dynasty viewer named Barbara Nadich, and she says, I have to admit I've become a Dynasty addict. I even watch the reruns at 7 o'clock every night. Why? Well, it's a whole world I don't have to take seriously. I like watching the outrageously evil characters suffer these occasional attacks of morality. That's different from Dallas. In Dallas, people are evil without apology. I guess you could say I watch it because it's stupid. Well, actually, it's beyond stupid. It's ludicrous. No, I don't have a favorite character. They're all reprehensible. Even the gay character. That's true equality, I suppose. I find the show boring, but that's okay. I like to be bored. It's a relief from the rest of my day. And if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about Dynasty, here's Eddie Murphy in his classic Saturday Night Live skit, White Like Me, in which he talks about what he does to prepare posing as a white man. I study for my role very carefully. I watch lots of Dynasty. See? See how they walk? Their butts are real tight when they walk. They keep their butts tight. I got to remember to keep my, my butt real tight when I walk. John Forsythe is also known for one other role. Good morning, angels. That's right. He's the voice of Charlie in the original Charlie's Angels. And we will see him again once more, but not for a long time. He's in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode, I Saw the Whole Thing. John Forsyth died in 2010 at the age of 92. My colleague Amy, who joined me in the last episode, sent me an email 
before I started working on this episode, in which she wrote, Just remember that John Forsyth is not a great actor. He's only okay. And I think that's certainly true here. He does a fine job with the vacant look and the angry look, but the shock of finding Greg's hunting license is not very well presented, and some of his other moments of puzzlement and shock don't really work for me. But he's okay. He's fine. The others are all fine, too. Warren Stevens, Percy Helton, George McCready, Harry Tyler. They all work with what they are given. Cloris Leachman, in particular, is really not given much to do, sort of mooning around and worrying about Kim. But she does get the punchline, which she performs very well. Jacqueline Pye, who goes by the name Pie Lady, is blogging and grading all the Alfred Hitchcock episodes from the beginning at her website, pieladyanthology.wordpress.com. And she says a premonition that everything about this episode is cryptic. It's comically cryptic. And I can see that. It's certainly cryptic. I don't know how comically cryptic it is, but there are definitely all sorts of gnawing questions, most of which have nothing to do with the ending of the episode. I wonder all sorts of things. Can Kim actually walk away from a hospital and board a plane without anyone catching him, even in 1950s America? Even if he gets away with that, why isn't someone waiting for him in Stangerford to take him back when he shows up? Wouldn't they figure he'd be going home? Why doesn't the hospital notify anyone? Why is everyone so unconcerned when they see him? And wouldn't they pack him off to the hospital the first chance they get? Other questions. Is Kim really an accomplished pianist? We find out he hasn't been in Paris or Rome. He does play the piano at one point. He seems pretty good. What does that have to do with anything beyond just establishing his delusion? Why does Perry wear his tennis outfit home from the tournament? Was the tournament at their home courts? Kim tells Susan that he's sorry he wasn't there for the festivities which means that he was probably already in the hospital having killed Greg before Perry and Susan get married. He's still very resentful, though, about losing Susan. So does he lose Susan after he murders Greg? And if he's in a hospital and he has this delusion going on, why do they even bother to tell him that Perry and Susan have gotten married? When Perry says about the will... He changed it right after you after you left. Is he revealing that he and Doug changed the will after Kim was put away? Why was Greg's hunting license left so conveniently on the side of the table? Why does Doug say you look just like your father when he knows Kim killed his father? What's with Doug's Hamlet crack, which seems to imply that someone other than Kim killed Greg, since Doug says this to himself? How old was Greg when he died? How many years ago was it? What's with all the sweating? Ultimately, who cares? It's all about that ending. There's a mystery novel, which will remain unnamed so that I don't ruin the ending, where the narrator is the murderer. But here, Harold Swanton does that one better because the murderer is not only the narrator, he's also the investigator. I find the voiceovers a little bit annoying in this episode, but they do establish that we're viewing this from Kim's point of view and from within Kim's head. Because it turns out, everybody 
in the episode of any significance knows what the solution is, except Kim. So suddenly, once we find out the solution, in retrospect, a number of things do make sense, such as the near strangulation of Mr. Eaton, the threatening of Isaiah Dobbs with the hay bale hook. And what it finally comes down to is, as Pogo Possum said on a poster for the first Earth Day, we have met the enemy and he is us. And I really like that about this episode. So let's go back to the pie lady for a moment. She says about this episode, it's simple. One can probably guess the twist immediately. And it's fun to see quintessential 1950s decor. But is it predictable? Can you guess the twist immediately? I didn't think so when I first saw it years ago. I didn't see it coming. But even if you guess the ending, I think it still gets to you. It doesn't matter how often I hear Susan say, you did, Kim. It gives me a chill every time. So is this one of the good ones? In spite of all the oddness, the cryptic moments, the things not answered, yes, this is definitely one of the good ones. And as the cold New England sun slowly sinks behind the coroner's office, we take leave of mysterious far-off Sheridan Falls, land of enchantment. And as the night breeze carries our little craft away from these beautiful wooded shores, we slowly turn our eyes back to the charms of television advertising and the lyrical chant of our sponsor's message, after which I'll float back. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 collection, which includes the special feature Alfred Hitchcock Presents A Look Back, and The Trouble with Harry, which includes the special feature The Trouble with Harry Isn't Over, are both available at the Ann Arbor District Library on DVD. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Star Trek, the original series, season two, are available at the library on DVD and Blu-ray. So that's it for this episode, except that having brought up the turtle joke that Hitchcock told on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson years ago, I feel like I should not leave you hanging and tell the joke as well as I can remember it. So here it is. A little boy goes up to his mother. He holds out his pet turtle. The turtle is inside his shell. He's unmoving. The little boy is crying and crying and crying. My turtle is dead, Mommy. My turtle is dead. Do something about it. What can you do? Please help, Mom. And he's so full of sorrow that his mother's heart just goes out to him. And she says, well, son, there's nothing we can do about that. But I'll tell you what we will do. We're going to give him the grandest funeral you've ever seen. We're going to pick out the nicest shoebox, and we're going to decorate it with ribbons and bows and all sorts of little toys that you want to put on top, and we'll put them in the shoebox. And then we'll invite all of your friends from the neighborhood, and we'll have a grand parade down the street celebrating your turtle's life and bringing the shoebox to the backyard where we'll dig a lovely little hole for him, and we'll make a lovely little placard for him, and we'll put that up, and we'll say wonderful things about what a great turtle he was, and we'll bury him, and then we'll have a big party afterwards. 
with balloons and cake and pizza and all of your friends can come and it'll be like a birthday party, only we'll be celebrating your turtle's life. Won't that be wonderful? And the little boy says, oh yes, mommy, that'll be wonderful. And just after he says that, the turtle pokes his head out from the shell. And his mother says, look, son, there's your turtle poking his head out of the shell. He's not dead after all. And the little boy looks at the turtle and then looks at his mother. And he says, let's kill him. So that's episode two of Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and if you wish to email me about this episode, my address is scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D. S-M-A-A at A-A-D-L dot O-R-G. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode three, Triggers in Leash, starring Gene Barry, Darren McGavin, and Ellen Corby. I see it's time for our intermission. You may leave your seats if you wish and uh, have some light refreshment, chat with your friends, but please hurry back for our next play. That will be in just uh, one week. Good night. <laughs>